0: often um, low-income country or developing country may think that they don't have capacity to deal with a big public health issues in the world. Uh, But if we are flexible and innovative and believe in ourselves, I still think that the developing country can do many things.
1: That was Thua Nguyen, one of our guests on this week's episode of Contain This. In the episode, we discuss Vietnam's response to COVID-19 and antimicrobial drug resistance with Associate Professor Gregory Fox, Professor Guy Thwaites, and Dr. Thua Nguyen. Greg Fox is a respiratory physician, an epidemiologist, and a clinical trialist at the Woolcock Institute for Medical Research. He is also the project lead of the Centre for Health Security-supported Antimicrobial Resistance V-Resist program in Vietnam. Professor Thwaites is the Director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit and the Director of the Wellcome Trust's major overseas programs in Vietnam. He is a Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Oxford. He is also a member of the Centre for Health Security's Technical Reference Group. And Thuan Nguyen is a medical doctor and public health expert, with more than 20 years' experience in design and management of health studies, including a decade working at senior levels in international health organisations. She was awarded the Prosper Netscope Young Scientists Award in 2012 and was the first runner-up of the 2010 Asia 21 Young Leaders Award. Duan is the Vietnam Country Director for the Wilcock Institute for Medical Research, based in Hanoi. Since this interview was recorded, a large number of COVID cases have been detected in the coastal city of Da Nang. As discussed by our guests, the government have taken early action And immediately imposed a lockdown and commenced widespread testing of the city's 1.1 million residents. I'm your host, Adam Craig. You guys have worked in Vietnam researching infectious diseases for quite a while now. Can you start by telling me what the main health challenges in Vietnam are? Can I start with
2: you, Greg? Vietnam is uh, changing very rapidly, and so it faces the dual challenges of Uh, infectious disease such as um, tuberculosis and uh, dengue fever um, as well as other viral illnesses um, uh, coupled with emerging um, chronic diseases such as diabetes um, and cardiovascular disease and so being at a transition point between having uh, having had uh, low-income uh, status um, to now uh, becoming rapidly industrialised and developing, it's really at that crossroads between those two different groups of diseases. And what that means is that sometimes infectious diseases tend to get neglected um, and and forgotten about uh, because of the diseases of, uh, of affluence, but in fact they remain big problems. The area which um, I do a lot of my research in, tuberculosis, uh, is a really important um, focus uh, for Vietnam. Vietnam still has around 150,000 cases of tuberculosis a year and is one of the uh, the top 30 countries for tuberculosis incidents worldwide. And uh, although there'd been a lot of uh, steps taken to control tuberculosis, it still remains very common and there's still a lot of uh, uh, important
3: work that needs to be done to try and control that particular infectious disease.
1: Guy, do you have anything to add?
3: Yeah, I do. I agree, I agree totally with Greg. I, I think there's one other challenge as well and that's it's almost as if... Um, Vietnam's become a victim of its own success uh, in two ways. Firstly, that it's become a, a middle-income country, a low-middle-income country, and that means that it has some quite severe consequences for its international funding. Um, and uh, Whereas a lot of programs in the past, a lot of public health programs, relied on, on international funding, a lot of that funding now has dropped off. Um, and therefore, there is really quite considerable constraints on public health programs in the country now. Uh, that's true of tuberculosis, it's particularly true of HIV, um, but also vaccination programs. And um, whereas the country is generally getting more wealthy, actually the amount of money required to not only maintain these programs, but actually develop them um, to the standards that the, this developing, rapidly developing country requires um, is really, really quite difficult. And I think actually, Uh, Aside from what Greg says, which is completely true, I think the funding of programs to to look after both this dual challenge of infectious and non-infectious disease um, is really, really going to be very challenging over the coming decade. And I think that's one of the big things, particularly for infectious disease, that we're we're going to be going to be watching and researching over the the coming 10 years.
1: So is that a withdrawal of funding uh, as a result of the emergence of the Vietnamese economy or is it something else?
3: It's it's, to, it's both actually. I mean, the, the the economy is doing very well, and and, and Vietnam's much wealthier. And but therefore, the um, its eligibility for external funding, for example, you know, vaccine funding from Gavi, um, has, will, will fall off and is falling off massively because it's now a middle-income country. But it, there's other changes as well. I mean, globally, politically, there's there's much less desire, I think, from certainly from big countries, some well-known big countries, to actually start funding or keep funding um, external programs. Uh, and I think that's going to have quite a big impact over the, over the coming years.
1: Thuan Nguyen, you are currently the Vietnam Country Director for the Sydney University Woolcock Institute for Medical Research, based in Hanoi. What do you observe has been the change in the way that healthcare has been delivered in Vietnam?
0: Uh, I, I think that in the past, um, I totally agree with uh, the comment made by Greg and Guy Tren, and I think that in the past, Uh, We, the country focused on delivering primary health care to people, and the gaps between the rich and the poor was not as wide as the gap that we have seen in recent years. So now the country has to provide both primary health care, very basic health care for poor people, for people in the uh, uh, remote area ethnic minorities, but also have to provide health care for uh, people in the city with the uh, rapidly change in the aging uh, population, uh, as well as the change in the pattern of diseases. Um, as Greg mentioned, uh, there's a lot of people suffering from non-communicable disease, such as hypert- um, hypertension or diabetes or cancer and there's not um, a high quality health care for uh, both groups so i think there's a need to reform the healthcare system in vietnam
1: the three of you articulate really clearly this changing epidemiological pattern and the burden that's placing on on a government that now has to cater for both infectious and non-infectious disease burdens uh, without necessarily without the aid of, of uh, foreign donors or, as, or at least the willingness for foreign donors to, to contribute. For decades, Vietnam has been considered a hotspot for the emergence of infectious diseases. What are the conditions in Vietnam that make it ripe for these
2: emergence of disease? So Vietnam um, has traditionally been an agricultural society and that means that people live in very close proximity to animals and uh, therefore uh, infectious diseases such as influenza and other emerging diseases, zoonotic diseases, um, can potentially spread from animal populations to human populations. Uh, The other thing which uh, we've discovered in our research and which has been well known for some time in Vietnam is that uh, there's a considerable overuse of antibiotics um, and, and antimicrobials in general. And as a result, there's been strong selective pressure on microorganisms Uh, to become resistant to antibiotics and uh, because of the relatively easy access and the relatively limited regulation of access to antimicrobial agents uh, we've seen uh, in many parts of Vietnam really high rates of antibiotic resistance uh, which indicates uh, that uh, that Vietnam uh, has been a hotspot for the development of antimicrobial resistance and I think uh, the challenges that the government faces uh, in being able to go and increase the regulation of the the use of antimicrobials uh, is a really top priority for Vietnam in controlling uh, the emergence of uh, resistant infectious diseases. Another example is tuberculosis, where drug-resistant tuberculosis is also uh, relatively common in Vietnam, and and Vietnam is a high-burden country for MDR-TB. I think, in summary, um, Vietnam has, uh, because of the way that it's developed, um, a high risk of uh, being a place where new infectious diseases can emerge and where existing infectious diseases can develop resistance. So, An
1: and Guy, do you have anything else you'd like to add?
3: Uh, I think, um, for me, it's very large numbers of people and, and its and its and its uh, position in in Asia makes it uniquely susceptible as well. I mean, it's got seventy nine uh, sorry ninety seven million people.
1: Ninety seven um, million. And,
3: and um, it's obviously intimately connected to China and other parts of East Southeast and South Asia, and uh, and that position I think makes it very vulnerable to um, to emerging infectious diseases, which uh, which actually the whole region has been historically susceptible to. So I think that's, that's a very important part of, of why Vietnam has, um, ha- <clears throat> has traditionally been seen at the forefront. I think the other, the other thing to say is that it also has, compared with many countries in the region, really quite good methods for detecting things, detecting emerging infections. And therefore, so there's a, a sort of bias, if you like, towards things being picked up in Vietnam, just because they're better at doing it than say, Laos or Cambodia.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why has Vietnam got a, a strong surveillance system?
3: Um, a lot of it's historical, at uh, least in the last 20 years. So you'd be aware that um, SARS in 2002-03 in yeah. affected Northern Vietnam. Um, the very next year, 2003-04, there was avian influenza, the first 10 cases in the hospital, which I'm sitting in now, um, in the world. Um, but subsequent to that, and actually on a much larger scale, there have been very big outbreaks of dengue, measles, um, hand foot and mouth disease um, over the over the subsequent you know decade and a half. And and Vietnam has had to respond to these. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's alongside the, the, the kind of traditional challenges, perhaps, of TB, which also has a very big problem. Oh. So, you know, it has lots of um, it has lots of problems with infectious diseases and has necessarily developed the, the mechanisms for for dealing with them. Um, so yeah. it's, it's quite and, that, and that's part of it. We'll come to it, I'm sure, but as part of the reason for its success with, with COVID. I remember back to
1: 2009 and the influenza pandemic. At the time, the Vietnamese government's response was held up as an example of how countries should be preparing for and responding to pandemic threat. I wonder how much of the experience from that time has carried through to today and has influenced how the Vietnamese government's response to the threat of COVID-19 is rolling out.
0: Yes, I think that from the um, experience with uh, the influenza pandemic in the past, Vietnam government has been able to set up an alert system uh, that requires collaboration from different sectors, not only health, but also um, people committee, uh, education sector, tourism, agriculture, so on and so forth, from the village to the national level. To take action so when the covid come to vietnam the government uh, have a, already a system to to take action very quickly and then uh, all the new uh, you can call new or old but uh, the the intervention such as contact tracing is not new in vietnam the country has been doing that for different diseases so when covid comes, they just take action and they already have procedure they just need to make some adjustment to uh, be appropriate for COVID-19 contact tracing uh, strategy Uh, and the people in the villages they they know about communication diseases and communicable diseases they um, they used to understand about the route of transmission and how to respond to the, the outbreak or pandemic so they tend to follow the instruction from the local authorities i'm thinking
1: yeah thuan you you articulate so clearly the need or the value of having strong control and command systems and governance uh, systems for for infectious disease response I can I ask you to talk a little bit about the Vietnamese government's use of risk communication in their response to COVID-19?
0: I, I think that the communication strategy or campaign, uh, the government of Vietnam has been taken in this uh, period is very effective. In the past, I have seen the government taking uh, implementing the communication strategy using the uh, the authority, the, the government system uh, information was given by the national TV and by healthcare care worker. But during the COVID outbreak, uh, things were different. The information was not only provided by the government, but the government also mobilized um, key opinion leaders, you could say uh, using social media, using loudspeaker in the village, uh, using youth union, farmer union, uh, using children around single actress to provide information by different way. And one of the very important action is the government is transparent about the situation Mm -hmm. in the country. And when people have any fake news or any doubt about number of patient example, then in the morning of the day after, there will be information with picture clearly show. Uh, and respond to that fake news. So people trust the government, and that's why they follow the instruction from the government.
1: Yeah, interesting. Greg and Guy, risk communication is obviously one part of the, the response strategy to COVID-19, or to any outbreak for that matter. Could you talk a little bit about how the risk communication element fits in with the broader response to COVID-19, such as the laboratory testing capacity and uh, and you know, mass, mass testing or availability of testing uh, and also contact tracing and other
2: things? I think there are two elements to risk um, when it comes to COVID-19. First is individual risk and second is community yeah. risk. And I mm-hmm. think what Vietnam has done well is it's being able to link those two together. Um, that is to be able to show how, whilst individuals are at risk of COVID, that the response and the need for a strong response is very much in the interest of the broader community. And that that some sacrifice for a short period of time uh, mitigates against a much greater problem down the track. And so we saw very early on, families being willing to keep their kids at home for months um, at the very start of the pandemic um, and lockdowns very early, um, including uh, closing the borders with China, all of which reflected a recognition that this was a serious disease, And therefore, if it was to be contained, it needed to be uh, uh, interrupted very quickly. And it really stands out. Um, There's very few countries in the world which have been as quick to respond as Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I think, in part, coming back to your earlier point from from previous pandemics, it reflects Vietnam's recognition uh, of how to do this well and and how very quickly the spread of a virus uh, to a small number of people can can, uh, escalate. Uh, and have a big uh, economic uh, and social impact much more broadly. And so, therefore, um, perception of risk and the uh, the perception that, uh, that there was indeed a, a very considerable risk uh, of transmission, I think, resulted in the strength and the breadth of ac- activity, which ultimately resulted in uh, only 401 cases as of today, a very small number of
3: cases compared to almost mm. every other country in the region.
1: Guy, right, do you have
2: anything to add?
3: What to, to Anne said about trust between um, the government and the people was yeah. um, it was very true actually, um, and, I, and I think that was in part due to their, or actually in great deal due to their their good communication strategies, mm-hmm. um, and and that was uh, that's I think that's one of the main lessons for other governments actually is that um, if you lose trust, then it, then the sorts of quite extreme measures that you have to take to control this infection become much more difficult to implement. Um, and they did take quite extreme measures (laughs) you know the the, at one stage you know there were many tens of thousands of people in quarantine they probably quarantined more than 20 more than 200 people overall in a in a a four month period so you know these are quite extreme measures and it requires a a pretty high degree of trust between Mm. um government and people to be able to implement them properly
1: Mm. I think it's definitely one of those pandemics which has highlighted the, the need for community participation in the response. It's, it's not all about governments and the contact tracing and the, the uh, case identification and isolation. It's actually about the willingness of the people to, to as you said before, uh, identify and share that or have that shared risk and, uh, and respond collectively to it. You guys are all part of the Australian government funded uh, the RESIST program. First, could you tell us about what VResist is? And second, what does the program aim to achieve?
2: Thank you. So um, the VResist program uh, is funded by the Centre for Health Security and the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has uh, a package of interventions that aim to address the problem of antibiotic resistance in Vietnam, in particular within the local community. And the objectives of this project overall uh, are to develop and implement and evaluate complex health systems interventions that will reduce the emergence of antimicrobial resistance in the country.
1: So, Greg, can I pause there? Can you just explain what antimicrobial resistance is?
2: So, um, bacteria or other microbes um, are uh, commonly uh, causes of disease and... Uh, initially, um, before antibiotics are used, um, uh, they are susceptible to to antibiotics that are available. Mm -hmm. But over time, if antibiotics are used to treat them, they can develop resistance. And so what that means is that the bacteria no longer respond to the antimicrobial agent or the microbes no longer respond to the antimicrobial agent, um, which means that some patients may have worse outcomes as a result of those infections. And so... Um, antimicrobial resistance um, uh, is particularly important for people who uh, are infected with those uh, organisms and who may need treatment, but for whom very limited treatment options may be available.
1: So, boiling that down, it's when the pathogens that make us sick are not able to be treated with the drugs that we have on the shelf at the moment.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: So, back to the V-Resist program, What
2: does it aim to achieve? So it's got a few aims. Uh, First of all, to look at what are the health system drivers of antimicrobial resistance in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It secondly aims to look at what is common practice in the community, um, in particular within private private pharmacies and how people are using antibiotics in practice. And then thirdly, uh, it aims to develop and then evaluate some community based interventions to try and educate the public and educate health providers to use antimicrobials more appropriately.
1: So, what have you found so far?
2: So, we've done some work um, with uh, partners, including the National Institute of Hygiene and Epidemiology in Hanoi,
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: the National Lung Hospital, uh, as well as uh, partners uh, across the country. And we've learned a number of really interesting things. First of all, there is uh, strong, high level commitment to antimicrobial resistance action, uh, such as through the national action plan uh, that has been endorsed at a national level. But at the same time, as there's strong high level central support at the local level, there is much more limited awareness of the problem Mm -hmm. and also much uh, uh, more limited uh, detection of antimicrobial resistance. And so, when you get right down to the community level, you find that uh, antimicrobials um, are not well understood by many people, um, Mm -hmm. leading them to be used excessively and potentially contributing to resistance. Just as an example, um, we have done a survey in uh, almost uh, 2,000 facilities Mm -hmm. uh, uh, across health health facilities. Yeah. So um, these are um, private pharmacies, Mm -hmm. uh, largely. And we found that around 73% of people uh, who were approached by a person uh, acting as a patient, around 73% of people um, supplied antibiotics um, without a prescription for an illness, which would not otherwise require an antibiotic. And uh, for people who had a common cold, it was 88% um, of, of people. So in other words, it indicated that a very high proportion of private providers are using and and, and dispensing um, antimicrobial agents um, to people who would not usually require them. Now, this is not unique to Vietnam. This is a really common problem in many countries in the world. But uh, it certainly highlights that the ambitious national goals for antimicrobial stewardship are not filtering down to the local level, and. Therefore, there's a real opportunity to try and strengthen uh, the way that antibiotics uh, are used in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, to me, it seems or sounds like there's a whole body of social science research that needs to be undertaken to understand what are the drivers for that, you know, for the use of or the inappropriate use of antibiotics, both from an economic
2: perspective, but also from, you know, societal. That's right. And so we've done some really interesting qualitative work working with, um, Dr. Sarah Bernays from Sydney University and, and a qualitative research team in Vietnam to talk to people, uh, talk to pharmacists, talk to patients and find out why it is that they're using these drugs. And we found some really in- interesting things. First of all, we found that uh, there's a real desire for something that's effective
3: mm-hmm. and
2: Western medicines and anti antimicrobials are seen to be effective. Um, and so therefore people want to try something. If they have a cold, if they have you know, some some diarrhoea. Then they want to try something that works, and so they'll go mm-hmm. quickly towards a, a drug which they think works. Secondly, uh, we found that many people don't understand the idea of resistance; that they think that so long as they use the drug for only a few days, then it's unlikely that resistance will develop. And uh, and the understanding of resistance is much more um, related to the patient rather than the bacteria. So there's not as not as strong an understanding of how resistance works. And that means it's much harder to explain to people why taking um, short courses of of, um, these drugs might not be effective. And the third thing we found is that people really listen to authority figures. And so people uh, such as um, older people in the community, um, uh, women um, with with children, so mothers of children, uh, and also pharmacists are regarded very highly. And so therefore, um, these people we think can speak with some authority if we can educate them about what the appropriate use of of these drugs is. And so we think Mm. there's an opportunity to try and build upon local cultural norms to try and change some of these behaviours. Guy, Greg talks very clearly about what
1: antimicrobial resistance is. From a global perspective, how big is the problem?
3: Um, It's an enormous problem. Um, As many modelling studies have shown that many millions of people will die as a consequence of um, drug-resistant infections unless we do something about it, Um, so I I don't think there's any doubt that what we're seeing in Vietnam is is in any way unique to um, the rest of the world, Uh, it's it's something that is happening everywhere Um, and in some ways it's a a natural consequence of uh, evolution. Uh, The more you expose uh, bacteria to antimicrobial agents, the more likely are they are to uh, evolve mechanisms that stop them being killed by them and uh, so it's a it's an arms race if you like that is going to be quite difficult to win but but we must uh, win if we can
1: so what sort of illnesses are particularly uh, at risk of antimicrobial resistance
3: um, well in hospitals it's a particular problem uh, in vietnam and in o- other places and uh, hospitals is one is a, is a unique environment really um uh, particularly things like intensive care units where mm-hmm. you 've got um, large numbers of very susceptible people often exposed to quite large numbers of antibiotics because they 're very sick, and doctors feel that they need to give them antimicrobials to keep them alive
1: yep.
3: um, and you have um, bacteria that are well kind of evolved to living in those spaces and 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 so infections in that in that setting and in hospital settings, particularly respiratory infections but other bloodstream infections too um, caused by drug-resistant organisms are are a very big problem in Vietnam and
1: elsewhere. V-Resist is now in its second phase. You're testing your education programs through the implementation of two randomised control studies. Can you talk us through these two studies and
2: what they aim to achieve? The first study, um, which is V-Resist Study A, is a community-based cluster randomised trial, which means that we take whole communities and we, Mm -hmm. we deliver an intervention. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare what happens when we deliver um, an integrated community education package around uh, appropriate use of these drugs, of antimicrobials, Um, and at the same time, we educate pharmacists um, in private practice, uh, and uh, we educate opinion leaders in the community about how to safely use antimicrobials. And in particular, what are alternatives that they could use for diseases that don't require these drugs. And so we're going to, um, uh, in 40 different districts across the country, um, conduct a series of activities um, which will help to engage the community. Um, And we've already been developing and pilot testing some of these things. Um, They include um, community theatre. They include health promotion activities. They include training workshops uh, and community meetings, um, as well as uh, feedback for pharmacists. And those interventions together uh, we think can uh, improve the understanding of these uh, the role of these drugs and uh, therefore contribute to a reduction in their use and so that uh, that's a very ambitious study um, which uh, we will implement uh, at the community level in partnership with uh, organizations uh, locally um, and community groups locally. Mm-hmm. The second study um, B resist study b uh, is focused on the local health facilities and what we're going to do in that study is Uh, apply some of the methods that we use in other countries, including Australia, um, to try and change the behaviour of the healthcare workers uh, who prescribe antibiotics. And so we're using a method called audit and feedback where we perform routine uh, audit of their prescribing patterns and in uh, an anonymous way, um, which doesn't uh, provide uh, threat to the individual, we would provide feedback about how current practice compares to optimal practice. And in doing so, try to shift the culture away from the routine use of antibiotics. And we're going to do that by providing some structured algorithms that are adapted for the local setting to try and help doctors to treat patients um, appropriately. So they've got a viral uh, upper respiratory tract illness to try and encourage them to provide advice and provide um, non-antibiotic therapy uh, for these patients. Uh, and also to try and uh, identify for the leaders of those health facilities what some of the advantages for them will be of of introducing this program. And we're working in partnership with some experts in Australia who are are working on a similar program here to try and transfer skills and and build capacity within the Vietnamese health system for antimicrobial stewardship.
1: So could you explain for us what you mean by antimicrobial stewardship?
2: So antimicrobial stewardship recognises that The drugs we use to treat different microbes are a precious resource. Um, And so we need to think of them as being something that we uh, need to guard uh, and use carefully. And so therefore we need to steward them um, appropriately. And so antimicrobial stewardship is the idea that uh, people who are working uh, in a healthcare setting uh, need to be using antimicrobials where appropriate and uh, reducing the inappropriate use of uh, antimicrobials uh, so that they don't uh, drive drug resistance. And that includes avoiding the use of really broad spectrum antibiotics where they're not necessary, Mm -hmm. and uh, also trying to step down from injected to oral drugs where possible.
1: Okay. So um, obviously having the community on side and on board with these interventions is is important for their success. Could you provide some insights into how the community is responding to these two trials?
0: We haven't been able to conduct the trial due to COVID-19 outbreak in Vietnam. We have to delay all our activities. So I must I have to say that I don't have the uh, practical experience, but I'm thinking that uh, people are willing to, to reduce the use of antibiotics if people understand. Uh, why uh, the risk of overuse of antibiotics and how to protect their health.
1: Is it something that clinicians in Vietnam are, are aware of?
0: I think that the, from our interview with many clinicians, they understand that. But they was uh, driven by the demand from the patient. Okay. If you are a good doctor, you should uh, prescribe antibiotic. So. It's very difficult to refuse a patient if you want to keep reputation and have many patients to visit uh, you um, in your clinic day. Yeah, um, that's. So I, uh, yeah,
1: that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, today I am going to the field to deal with a patient who take double dose of antibiotic, the TB drug, with the hope that it will kill the bacteria quicker and faster. So it's, not only uh, related to the knowledge or behavior of the clinicians, but also the community, uh, how they value their their health and how they think what could help them to have a better health. And it really related to uh, how the the intervention uh, could be done in a participatory way with the people in the village by the people in the village Uh, we as a doctor from with a white blouse from big hospital when we come to the rural area is quite we speak different language and it's not Mm. always easy for people to fully get the message and and really follow the instruction
1: yeah i can see why your behavior change communication work is so important Guy, a few of the guests we've had on the show recently have talked about One Health and this idea that in settings where emergent diseases are common, we need to approach them with this uh, looking at uh, One Health approach, which is uh, looking at the human health, the animal health, and then the environment aspect. How important is taking a One Health approach when looking to address AMR risks?
3: Well, a lot of antimicrobial use is in agriculture in fact the vast majority of it is really many millions of tons uh, go into agriculture um, and supporting um, food delivery systems for for all of us so um, some some of that antimicrobial use is actually essential to keeping animals well and crops growing and and producing food. Some however is probably not essential and uh, probably quite a large amount of it so understanding the the amount of antimicrobial use in in agriculture and how much of that affects bacteria associated with animals but also within the environment and and then onto human communities and and, and into hospitals and how the resistance that uh, may be developed in in agriculture and in the environment actually affects humans uh, is enormously important. Um, I think if you were to only um, try and understand antimicrobial resistance, for example, just by studying hospitals, you wouldn't get a full appreciation of the the problem and nor would you probably be able to develop the the requisite tools to be able to to solve or or at least mitigate it. So um, I think it is very important, as it is for emerging infections, which everyone appreciates. A great deal of them come from the animal human interface
1: sounds like the work that you guys are doing to really understand what those drivers are at the community level but also within the health sector is integral and really important for addressing the antimicrobial resistance issue in vietnam but obviously globally finally what lessons can other countries learn from vietnam's approach to managing infectious diseases guy can i start with you
3: sure um i think well, COVID. The, the lessons um, from their excellent response to COVID um, are going to be very important to learn, I think. And, and as you touched upon, I think that the, there are three components here that, that, that really out that stand out their success: that's the speed of their response, their their coordination of, of the, the contact tracing and isolation, and lastly the communication. So. In, in terms of um, how they respond to emerging infectious diseases, I think uh, they are outstanding on those fronts. I think their, their challenges, however, are actually probably with the, the, the less dramatic and the less um, newsworthy in some ways. Um, so we're in a slightly ironic position now in, in Vietnam of having no COVID at all. And that need community transmission since April the 14th. Oh. We're dealing with uh, quite a large outbreak of diphtheria in southern Vietnam at the moment, you know, mm-hmm. so a completely vaccine preventable disease. So yes, there are, there, there are some really, really, really good things about Vietnam's response, but I think there are, there are, there are still some challenges there which um, uh, are going to be very interesting to watch over the next five to ten years.
1: Thanks. Gregory?
3: I think Vietnam has shown
2: through its COVID response what it can achieve when the government at a high level and the population uh, really commit to trying to control an infectious disease. So I think the lesson uh, that I see is that Vietnam uh, models what is possible um, with strong commitment, and that that commitment, uh, if it's applied to other infectious diseases, could really um, be transformational. Uh, if I look at tuberculosis, which is a common infectious disease in Vietnam. Uh, that has not had the same degree of high-level engagement. Uh, Its uh, incidence really has remained um, relatively high despite um, many years uh, of of standard treatment being available. And I think it shows us that if Vietnam uh, can commit to the same level of ambition to try and eliminate, uh, or at least to significantly uh, contain other infectious pathogens, uh, then then it could do so. Mm. And so I think the lesson for the region is that uh, when uh, motivation and uh, and communication and capacity align, uh, then we can really achieve great things in controlling infectious diseases and we should not have our ambitions be as low as they usually are. We should use COVID as really a benchmark for what we can achieve.
1: Well, hopefully after the COVID-19 event there'll be a lot more focus on the control of infectious diseases and the 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 improvement to global health security
0: doan anything to add i think that guy twit and Greg fox have summarized very well Uh, i have only one um, thinking that often um, low-income country or developing country may think that they don't have capacity to deal with a big public health issues in the world. Uh, But if we are flexible and innovative and believe in ourselves, I still think that the developing country can do many things.
1: Guy Thwaites, Gregory Fox, Thuan Yuan, thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. You've heard from Dr. Thuan Yuan, Associate Professor Gregory Fox, and Professor Guy Thwaites, about the work the Wilcock Institute for Medical Research is doing to arrest antimicrobial resistance in Vietnam, and about the Vietnamese government's approach to the threat of COVID-19. Next fortnight, we will bring to you the first episode of a special series with Indo-Pacific health leaders, which looks at how our region's health professionals have approached the challenge of providing public health leadership through the COVID-19 pandemic.